The Guardian. The Guardian Short Stories Podcast. Sebastian Barry reads Everline by James Joyce. She sat at the window watching the evening invade the avenue. Her head was leaned against the window curtains, and in her nostrils was the odour of dusty cretonne. She was tired. Few people passed. The man out of the last house passed on his way home. She heard his footsteps clacking along the concrete pavement and afterwards crunching on the cinder path before the new red houses. One time there used to be a field there in which they used to play every evening with other people's children. Then a man from Belfast bought the field and built houses in it, not like their little brown houses, but bright brick houses with shining roofs. The children of the avenue used to play together in that field, the Divines, the Waters, the Duns, little Kyo, the Cripple, she and her brothers and sisters. Ernest, however, never played. He was too grown up. Her father used often to hunt them in out of the field with his blackthorn stick. But usually little Kyo used to keep nicks and call out when he saw her father coming. Still, they seemed to have been rather happy then. Her father was not so bad then, and besides, her mother was alive. That was a long time ago. She and her brothers and sisters were all grown up. Her mother was dead. Tizzy Dunn was dead, too, and the waters had gone back to England. Everything changes. Now she was going to go away like the others, to leave her home. Home. She looked round the room, reviewing all its familiar objects, which she had dusted once a week for so many years, wondering where on earth all the dust came from. Perhaps she would never see again those familiar objects from which she had never dreamed of being divided. And yet during all those years... She had never found out the name of the priest whose yellowing photograph hung on the wall above the broken harmonium beside the coloured print of the promises made to blessed Margaret Mary Alacock. He had been a school friend of her father. Whenever he showed the photograph to a visitor, her father used to pass it with a casual word. He is in Melbourne now. She had consented to go away, to leave her home. Was that wise? She tried to weigh each side of the question. In her home, anywhere she had shelter and food, she had those whom she had known all her life about her. Of course she had to work hard both in the house and at business. What would they say of her in the stores when they found out that she had run away with the fellow? Say she was a fool, perhaps, and her place would be filled up by advertisement? Miss Gavin would be glad. She had always had an edge on her, especially whenever there were people listening. Miss Hill, don't you see these ladies are waiting? Look lively, Miss Hill, please. She would not cry many tears at leaving the stores. But in her new home, in a distant unknown country, it would not be like that. Then she would be married. She, Eveline. People would treat her with respect then. She would not be treated as her mother had been. Even now, though she was over nineteen, she sometimes felt herself in danger of her father's violence. 
She knew it was that that had given her the palpitations. When they were growing up, he had never gone for her like he used to go for Harry and Ernest because she was a girl. But latterly he had begun to threaten her and say what he would do to her only for her dead mother's sake. And now she had nobody to protect her. Ernest was dead, and Harry, who was in the church decorating business, was nearly always down somewhere in the country. Besides, the invariable squabble for money on Saturday nights had begun to weary her unspeakably. She always gave her entire wages seven shillings, and Harry always sent up what he could, but the trouble was to get any money from her father. He said she used to squander the money, that she had no head, that he wasn't going to give her his hard-earned money to throw about the streets, and much more, for he was usually fairly bad on Saturday night. In the end he would give her the money and ask her had she any intention of buying Sunday's dinner. Then she had to rush out as quickly as she could and do her marketing, holding her black leather purse tightly in her hand as she elbowed her way through the crowds and returning home late under her load of provisions. She had hard work to keep the house together and to see that the two young children who had been left to her charge went to school regularly and got their meals regularly. It was hard work, a hard life, but now that she was about to leave it, she did not find it a wholly undesirable life. She was about to explore another life with Frank. Frank was very kind, manly, open-hearted. She was to go away with him by the night boat to be his wife and to live with her in Buenos Aires, where he had a home waiting for her. How well she remembered the first time she had seen him. He was lodging in a house on the main road where she used to visit. It seemed a few weeks ago. He was standing at the gate, his peaked cap pushed back on his head, and his hair tumbled forward over a face of bronze. Then they had come to know each other. He used to meet her outside the stores every evening and see her home. He took her to see the bohemian girl, and she felt elated as she sat in an unaccustomed part of the theatre with him. He was awfully fond of music and sang a little. People knew that they were courting, and when he sang about the lass that loves a sailor, she always felt pleasantly confused. He used to call her Poppins out of fun. First of all, it had been an excitement for her to have a fellow, and then she had begun to like him. He had tales of distant countries. He had started as a deck boy at a pound a month on a ship of the Allen Line going out to Canada. He told her the names of the ships he had been on and the names of the different services, he had sailed through the Straits of Magellan, and he told her stories of the terrible Patagonians. He had fallen on his feet in Buenos Aires, he said, and had come over to the old country just for a holiday. Of course, her father had found out the affair and had forbidden her to have anything to say to him. I know these sailor chaps, he said. One day he had quarrelled with Frank, and after that she had to meet her lover secretly. The evening deepened in the avenue. The white of two letters in her lap grew indistinct. One was to Harry, the other was to her father. Ernest had been her favourite, but she liked Harry too. Her father was becoming old lately, she noticed. He would miss her. Sometimes he could be very nice. Not long before, when she'd been laid up for a day, he had read her out a ghost story and made toast for her at the fire. Another day, when their mother was alive, they'd all gone for a picnic to the Hillhoth. She remembered her father putting on her mother's bonnet to make the children laugh. Her time was running out, 
but she continued to sit by the window, leaning her head against the window curtain, inhaling the odour of dusty cretonne. Down far in the avenue she could hear a street organ playing. She knew the air. Strange that it should come that very night to remind her of the promise to her mother, her promise to keep the home together as long as she could. She remembered the last night of her mother's illness. She was again in the close dark room at the other side of the hall, and outside she heard a melancholy air of Italy. The organ player had been ordered to go away and given sixpence. She remembered her father strutting back into the sick room, saying, Damned Italians coming over here! As she mused, the pitiful vision of her mother's life laid its spell on the very quick of her being, that life of commonplace sacrifices closing in final craziness. She trembled as she heard again her mother's voice saying constantly with foolish insistence, Derevan, Saran! Derevan, Saran! She stood up in a sudden impulse of terror. Escape! She must escape! Frank would save her! He would give her life, perhaps love too. But she wanted to live. Why should she be unhappy? She had a right to happiness. Frank would take her in his arms, fold her in his arms. He would save her! She stood among the swaying crowd in the station at the north wall. He held her hand and she knew that he was speaking to her, saying something about the passage over and over again. The station was full of soldiers with brown baggages. Through the wide doors of the shed she caught a glimpse of the black mass of the boat lying in beside the quay wall with illumined portholes. She answered nothing. She felt her cheek pale and cold, and out of a maze of distress she prayed to God to direct her, to show her what was her duty. The boat blew a long mournful whistle into the mist. If she went, tomorrow she would be on the sea with Frank, steaming towards Buenos Aires. Their passage had been booked. Could she still draw back after all he had done for her? Her distress awoke a nausea in her body, and she kept moving her lips in silent, fervent prayer. A bell clanged upon her heart. She felt him seize her hand. Come! All the seas of the world tumbled about her heart. He was drawing her into them. He would drown her. She gripped with both hands at the iron railing. Come! No, 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 it was impossible. Her hands clutched the iron in frenzy. Amid the sea she sent a cry of anguish. Eveline! Evie! He rushed beyond the barrier and called to her to follow. He was shouted at to go on, but he still called to her. She set her white face to him, passive, like a helpless animal. Her eyes gave him no sign of love or farewell or recognition. Now here's Lisa Allardyce, editor of Guardian Review. If you could tell us why you chose this particular story. Yes, Dubliners is the book from which all other books come in a mysterious way. You'd expect it to be Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake, but 
they have no rivers or roads leading out of them. But Dubliners has an infant number of paths, cinder paths and tarmacadamed roads coming out of it of Irish literature. Well, something you might be aware of as, as a young person. Well, I would, must have read this 35 years ago. Because it is constructed, you know, famously of um, stories that feature Joycean epiphanies, uh, you do remember, I wanted to read this story because I have never really gotten over the unexpected distress I felt when Eveline wouldn't go with her beloved to Buenos Aires. I suppose as a confused young 16-year-old Irish person, I wanted her then desperately to go with him. I understood instinctively what kept her, the chains she was in. Uh, and indeed in the story, she is, um, as Dylan Thomas would have it, singing in her chains like the sea. I knew she should have gone somehow to Buenos Aires. So not only did I feel that then, but I, I still feel it. And I'm still shocked. I want the seas of the world to drown her heart so that she can be re released into what you, you sense she can be. It's the compression, too, of the story, obviously. I mean, it, it's almost curious to talk about a story so famous, uh, from a book so famous by a writer so cherished and loved for many, many decades. But there are lots of clues, aren't there, that, that she isn't going to get on that boat? I think um, most events, all the history, and indeed all the literature of Ireland can be approached from a psychiatric point of view, <laughs> tragically. Uh, various parts of our history we have been described as one large lunatic asylum. In some degree, that's almost true today because of our, our economic woes. But the thing that stands out for me now, reading it, as opposed to 35 years ago, is the violence of her father. It's possibly not something I would have spotted, but having known people in the interim who've suffered such things in childhood, it is a thing that particularly locks children down and locks them down for the rest of their, of their lives, and, and, and I can see that that's what's holding her. And of course, if she'd only had somebody there in the room to tell her that, I think, she needs a, a kind word to loose her from this dreadful prison she's staying in. The compression of the story that you mentioned is extraordinary, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's, it's almost a textbook example of, of how to say a, a huge amount. I mean, she is only sitting in the window in amongst the dust, isn't mm. she? Apart from the very final scene where she's at the, at the port. Well, it is a textbook. So it's not just a textbook example. It is, as the Greeks say, to protopragmata. It is the first thing before everything else of, of Irish stories. It's not that he did it absolutely out of the blue because there's similar qualities in George Moore. And I think Joyce is young enough writing these stories to have you know, some influences, although it is astonishing how few there are. It's a third-person narrative, isn't it? But it has all the qualities of first-person. It is a sort of stream of consciousness, but it is remarkable how careful he is to include all the absolutely essential things. I was resisting saying stream of consciousness, which I've got yes, written in the margin here in big letters. I'm only allowed to say it because I'm, you know, 56. But, um, yeah, it, it, isn't, it isn't what we understand as stream of consciousness, is it? It's, um, it's in beautiful sentences. 
how he can speak so vividly is because he had access vividly to us is because he had access obviously to the eternal matters of the human heart so in a way how he does it is by being an absolute blatant what we would call a genius with a, with a total understanding of these matters so he he packs them in in, in an incredibly delicate way I mean, he is the best packer of the literary suitcase in all of history. You know, he can get it all in and travel lightly as well, which is the essence of the short story. Do you know that there are no themes for Joyce, if you understand? When, when, you know, when he's a young man writing this story, he is literally trying to give life to or bring back from the cold hand of death this particular woman and place her eternally in this room. And... You can't, you know, he couldn't have done that with themes in mind as such. He has to be unknowing as he's doing it, so that the thing is permanently knowable. And it's this sort of wonderful paradox for the writer. I would hope that when Joyce, you know, began his first few sentences, that he didn't actually quite know where he was going to reach. You will notice that um, the epiphany part of it, which is after the dot, dot, dots right at the end, is written in, in quite a different way. It's much more impression, impressionistic. It's much more not the atmosphere of the room. You know, there are no compacted points. There are no carefully placed, as if, as if by sleight of hand, essential things. It All is, the it is chaotic. All the world tumbling around her is, uh, to drown her is it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's gone to somewhere quite different, hasn't it? And and you couldn't imagine the whole story being written in that way. It wouldn't do at all. But it certainly does perfectly for that page. Is Everline, was that the one that, that particularly is particularly close to your heart of all 15? It's simply the, the one I remembered most vividly. It poses the, probably the most important question for an Irish person, to stay or to go. And it's still a question being asked now again of people of her age, you know, 19, 20. I was tempted to come in and read um, a story from Collins' The Empty Family, which in my private mind I do regard as a book equal to Dubliners and probably the finest actual book of Irish short stories since Dubliners. I do think that's Collins' tremendous achievement. Because I don't write short stories and I'm not quite sure how they're made, so they still fascinate me not as a writer but as a reader. downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio